The New Testament reading this evening comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. That's for God's help. Oh, Lord, this is a a mighty passage of Scripture that you inspired just hearing it. Uh, It's so rich. It moves in us. And I pray right now that you would just let some of the light of that uh, crack through and and enliven us, enlighten every person here in our presence. Would you move according to your will and your pleasure in Christ's name? Amen. So tonight we're going to wrap up uh, the series we started in the fall on experiencing God's word. And I wanted to say something just briefly about resources as, as we move from this series that we wouldn't leave things behind um, and if you are wanting to just uh, take what we've got, apply it, just a couple things. One is if you're desiring to understand how to interpret the Bible more, there's a book by New Testament uh, scholar Dan Doriani called Getting the Message. You could get that. Uh, I recommend to anybody to listen to me buying a copy of what's called the ESV Study Bible. Uh, I use it every week. It's an amazing resource. has lots of articles, lots of helps in there. Another help would be the Daily Prayer Project that's offered through our network. Those are just a few that will I, I help our community move deeper into this idea of experiencing God. And that's the question we've been getting at through this series. The question is, when you hear God's word and you, when you read 
the Bible, what is your experience? Are you aware of what you're experiencing? Are you aware of how it makes you feel? What you think? The impact that it has upon your life? As you think about uh, when you hear the Bible, counsel. When you hear the Bible, correct. When you hear the Bible, give perspective. When you hear God wooing his people, drawing his people, what experience are you having? And at the center of the series has been, and as you have that experience, are you encountering Jesus Christ? And tonight, as we wrap this up, that's going to be our focus as we near Advent, the beginning next week of Advent, the Word as flesh. That is the relationship between the Bible and Jesus Christ. And that emphasis is clear just from the beginning, where John starts in verse 1 and he goes back and forth saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, God, the Word, the Word, God. He's going back and forth. And as he does that, this is considered to be one of the great New Testament passages on the person of Jesus Christ. What we'd say is uh, the fully God nature of Jesus Christ. You may have noticed in verse 18 where John actually refers to two different persons as God. Saying that Jesus in the flesh the Son of God, God of God, light of light, and yet fully man, fully in the flesh, fully human. And to experience him like that, the God-man, is to experience light and life and sonship and grace and truth and grace upon grace upon grace. But you actually have to experience him as he is to have those things. If you compromise on either side, your experience will not be light life, grace upon grace. And so there's really no other passage that makes that connection more clear. So I'm glad we're spending time. at. And what I want to look at as we think about receiving the word as flesh Simply who we receive and what we receive. Who we receive and what we receive. So first of all, who we receive. Many times when Jesus would teach, uh, he would teach his disciples, his 12 disciples, in a circle in front of him. But the crowds would be earshot away. And so he's teaching to them, but he also knows they're listening in. Uh, John is doing a similar thing here. His first intended audience are folk like him, Jewish people that have come to embrace Jesus as Messiah. But at a great cost. They've been rejected by their community, their countrymen, as people that have forsaken the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, the law of God, who have forsaken the idea that there is one God. But that's that first inner circle. But he's also aware of a distant, another circle, a crowd, so to speak. And that is Greeks that are steeped in Greek philosophy. And this is what makes 
his usage of picking up the term logos, which is translated word, this is what makes that so brilliant. Because each of those groups had a reference point for that word. So it becomes an on-ramp for him to be able to get his message about who Jesus is before them. Now for the Jewish audience, they would have been tracking with John in those first parts about the word of God, thinking about the Torah and wisdom. Because it was taught that the law of God had been prepared before the creation of the world, long before Moses. And that wisdom had participated in the creation of the world. You can go to Proverbs 8. And they understood this to be, while Torah and wisdom were not synonymous with God himself, that this was God's self-expression. This was the sort of like impersonal agents of God. This was God acting. And then for the Greeks... They would have heard the word logos, and they would have thought the organizing principle of the universe, the reason, the logic of the universe. And so as, as John is going on and talking about this idea of the logos being eternal, and the logos being light and truth, uh, you know, they would have been nodding their head until they got to verse 18, then they would have been nodding their head this way. Because then he says, this word has become Flesh and has dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. At this point, it would have been confusion, comprehension problem. John is saying, What if? He's not posing it as a question, he's saying, But what if, if we did, if the eternal Wisdom and Torah and law and rationality. What if it became a person? You know, um, we have a similar way as the Greek today. You hear more and more people referring to the universe, right? Uh, that, uh, you know, I, you know I, I hope the universe will smile on me. I hope, I'm, you know, if the universe, you know, this sort of same language, this Greek idea. And in the scripture, God means for us to, to sort of not fall off on either side. You see it in the name of Jesus. Logos refers to his divine nature. Jesus refers to his human nature. Christ refers to his work as Messiah and salvation. All three of those things come together. And while it's not only a mind bender... It was downright offensive to John's original audience. I mean, for those that were Greeks, the flesh was lower order, right? This was a crude idea that the, the logos would take on flesh. It was considered something to be debased. And of course, for the Jews, God is the infinite spirit, the Lord. Yeah, he showed up a couple times in what are called theophanies. But that wasn't God of God, light of light. And so they would have been astounded, offended by this idea. But before we judge them, we have to understand, well, you know, in some ways not much has changed. All throughout history, people fall off on either side of the horse. Right? Those that would say, well, you know, if God came, he just appeared to be human. There's no way he really became fully human. And others that would say... For instance, like Jehovah's Witness, 
Well, he was a God. As they read the Greek text, they said, well, there's not a definite article there. Therefore, he's a God. In the beginning, there was a God. The problem was they they need to study Greek grammar better. Because all throughout the New Testament, you find that pattern. And so John is saying what would be incredible, right? Sometimes the harder reading is the more faithful reading. Many times. And the harder reading is the God-man. And while you and I struggle because of the nature of God to get an understanding of that, if you know the heart of God, it won't surprise you. Because this God had to come. His love drove him to come. This God cannot stay away from his people, especially in their desperate state, in their need. It's the only faith that teaches that God came. Fully God, in the flesh. And so what John is telling us here, yes, my friends, that the eternal, incomprehensible, mighty, infinite, most holy, most wise, most gracious, most merciful, most good, became one of us. That one came and dwelt among us. The embodiment of Torah and wisdom and the rationality. So, How do we receive this? We've been sort of floating up here. How do we receive this? Well, first of all, I think the tendency is when we read these things and read John's verse, the tendency is to say, man, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen. I wish I I could have been there. That would have made all the difference. You know, we often will say there's nothing like being in person. Go to a concert or go to a game, right? But, you know, it has its limits, doesn't it? I mean, let's say you're sitting in the front row of the game. Well, sitting in the front row of the game, I mean, yeah, you know, you get to see, you get to hear the, the, uh, the colorful language, right? You get to hear the smacks and the grabs and all that stuff, but you don't really have the perspective of people that are sitting way back, right? In fact, sometimes actually being at home on TV, you have a bigger perspective. You know, as much of a blessing as it was to be in person, it was only till later when the Spirit of God used the Word of God to open up the minds of those that were in person that they understood what they saw. In fact, the Apostle Peter will go on to say this. He'll say, listen, I was on a mountain with John and James... And God pulled back the veil and Jesus lit up and we saw divine glory. But you know something? What is more certain and more sure is what the prophets said about him. You see, the meaning of it, what I'm trying to say to you and I, friends, is there has never been a better time for you to experience God. Because you have the word of God and you have the meaning and the reflection of the apostles and the Holy Spirit completing the word of God. But, you know, you can't experience it 
You can't experience him unless you're actually in the word, right? And so you and I ought to actually be filled with anticipation and further, 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 further. That's hard to say. Expectation, but also obligation. Now, it says in here that those that heard refused to believe and receive the word as flesh. And I'm so glad that John combines those terms. Because, um, especially in our culture, in Western culture, when people don't believe in something, uh, they really tell themselves it's mostly because of uh, intellectual problems. That's kind of the great way to kind of get out of things. It's just illogical. I don't believe it. There's not enough evidence. So, so, so we can just kind of switch it aside. But let me ask you something. Have you ever rejected a position or an argument and you thought the reason you'd rejected it was out of logic, but later you realized it was because of emotion? I have. Think about any conflict you've had with somebody, <laughs> Right? The times where we say this is really, the grounds are rational. In these terms, believe and receive, they take us somewhere else. It's not just this idea of comprehension. It gets into willingness, humility, a desire to welcome and submit. And so what John is saying here is not so much people didn't believe the facts, but there was an emotional hardness of heart to receive the word. And this is why, you know, you and I need to take stock of, like, where is my heart as I sit down, as I hear the word of God? Important stuff. Jesus went on to say, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken of my own authority. What I'm saying is this. Your response, my response to the word of God is your response to God. Your response to the word of God is your response to God. Because Jesus comes as the word. But what about, what are we called to receive? Two things. Second point. To experience... Life and light. So Jesus picks up on some big, rich images here that are found all throughout Israel's worship in the Old Testament. Life and light, right? It's at the creation, the tree of light, the water that comes through uh, the rock in the desert, the lamps in the tavern and the tabernacle, the idea of God's holy presence. We looked at Psalm 119 for a couple weeks. In there, the word of God is said to be light or a lamp. The psalmist also says, your precepts bring me life. Jesus is the fulfillment of the carol we'll sing in a few weeks, light and life to all he brings. And this is contrasted with darkness and rejection. The word sin in the Bible, this idea of sin and evil, is many times depicted, right, as darkness and death. You find this in the, John is drawing upon these ideas, this symbolism of darkness and death. But this is the important thing to realize. Those that were rejecting Jesus in the word at that time, the religious leader and others, 
thought they were in the light. They thought they were doing right. They thought they were walking in justice. They thought they were walking in righteousness. And so they find themselves actually rejecting the light of God as they're operating in their own pride. And so you and I, you know, can think about our own lives here. I mean, how often, how easy, it it sobers me, it sobers, I hope, you as well. What can happen when we think we're walking in the light and we're walking in the right, but we're actually causing damage and death? You know, there's, there's a, a, a very, uh, you know, sad and tragic example before us, right? We're sitting on a Sunday between two very uh, famous trials, right? Last week, the one that was uh, determined on Friday, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, and then the upcoming uh, case of Ahmad Arbery. And in both cases, you have groups of people who were convinced they were walking in the light. Walking for righteousness, walking for justice, trying to protect things. And yet, they were blinded by power and violence and in darkness, and even one case, racism. And they thought they were walking in the light. And this is just one very public current example of what we see all the time, right? It ought to make all of us humble because all of us one day will be in a trial in a courtroom. And the psalmist would say, if God marked iniquities, who of us could stand? And yet, the very one, the very ones that supported the crucifixion of Jesus the very ones who denied him, the very ones who abandoned him, later became recipients of life and light. Amen. That gives me hope. Now, John, how does that happen? John mentions in here the tabernacle and the temple. Now, the tabernacle and the temple were the meeting place of God, right? The presence of God. But before the tabernacle and the temple, this was where the sacrifices were performed. The sacrifices for sin. These were a means of grace to God. And the holy priest could only go into that holy place, into the presence, into the very light of God, if he carried lifeblood. Right? That represented atonement and sacrifice. And so in Jesus Christ the Word, you and I learn of a high priest who enters that very tabernacle with his very own lifeblood. And just as the high priest of Israel was representing the people of Israel so they could have connection with God, he does the same for all that believe and receive him so that you and I can actually move into a place of undimmed light before God. He came to dwell among us. That word dwelt means that he came to pitch his tent. It's actually reference to the tabernacle, reference to the temple. That he has come, that you and I, we, last week we talked about having the permanent favor of God, that you might have the permanent position with God before him. And 
And it's only in the light that you and I can begin to have life. I, I was trying to think this week in my own life. I put this question before you. Uh, how are you seeking life? I mean, what is life to you? You know, what, what are those things where you think this is the quality of life? These are the things that I need to have, I want to have. And how are you seeking to get it? Because God would call his people, those that believe in him, to him. And it's through the light of the word that life comes to us. And so if you are seeking life like I am seeking life, you must have the light of the word to find it. But second of all, it's not just life and light, it's grace and truth. One full of grace and truth. Now, that phrase grace and truth is really an echo of a phrase you find all throughout the Old Testament. And that is, the Lord is full of steadfast love in faithfulness. You hear that all throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And you especially, if you go to this account where Moses says to God, you know, we've been hanging out a lot together. Friends get to know each other. I want to see your glory. I want to see you displayed in who you really are. And God says, well, I can't do that totally because it'll kill you. But what I'll show you is my afterglow. And as he shows Moses his back, his afterglow, as he passes through, he says what? The Lord, the Lord. He talks about steadfast love and kindness. Now what's striking here, John also mentions the law of Moses. So here you have, right, the law of Moses, the law that God gave through Moses only highlighted one thing, that people were unfaithful to follow God. That people were hard-hearted and selfish, that they really didn't want to love their neighbor with everything they got and love God with everything they got. So how in the world, this is the question, how in the world could God commit to being the God of full of grace and truth, steadfast love and kindness in light of that? You know, modern people, we ask the reverse question. We say, God, how will you justify yourself before me? Because my life and the suffering and everything I see the Bible actually poses a different question. It says, how will God justify the fact that he will be gracious to you? How will God justify the fact that he's going to be kind to you and me in light of our moral failures? And the grace of the sunshine we enjoy, the Thanksgiving feast we enjoy, the friends that listen to us, the medical healing as Andrew prayed, the relatives safely, all the kindnesses, how can God be gracious? Isn't that being a corrupt judge? And this is where the one full of grace and truth comes to bear. You see, there's really no other faith that poses that question. I mean, or the answer would be, uh, it, it, it's about how will we justify ourselves, but not this idea of how can God be just and be gracious and forgiving. I mean, you and I, right, when we have to forgive someone, I mean, someone that's really hurt us, Andrew was mentioning this early as well, 
I mean, it costs, doesn't it? I mean, each of you probably have someone in your mind like, I have to re-forget. There's some days, man, it's all I can do to even not wish their death. Depending on the wound, right? It's costly. What was the cost of God? Well, Jesus comes, grace and truth, comes to fulfill the law of God, the heart intent of it. Jesus, really, in a shocking, provocative way, when he begins to teach on the Sermon on the Mount, begins to take the law of Moses and say, let me tell you what it's really about. It was ultimately about the heart, and that I am the one that has come to fulfill it. And so what we have with grace and truth is this. Unlike the religious leaders who would fake their righteousness and fake their light, Jesus lives his life transparently before a community 24-7 over three years, not to mention he grows up in a community, among many people, among great pressure, a great, among great hatred, among people that are after him, to the point of suffering, injustice, crucifixion, He bears this, and yet he fulfills the law. He stands in the place of lawbreakers so we could stand in the place of a lawkeeper. Grace for what you and I should have done, and grace for what you and I shouldn't have done. Grace upon grace, full of grace and truth. And this really shows the heart of God. Right? I just love that phrase, grace upon grace, because God doesn't just want to be a little bit gracious to you. He doesn't meet you halfway. He doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't get you in the college so you can earn your degree. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. How much grace do you expect from God? How much is it? Does it just keep coming? Every day it does it keep coming? It does. But how are you going to know that? Because you ain't going to hear it from our culture, and you're not going to hear it from the word on the street, and you're not going to hear it from your guilty conscience. You're not going to hear it from the true guilt or false guilt. You're not going to hear it from the tapes in your head. You're not going to hear it from all the relationships like you should around you. Where are you going to hear about the grace upon grace that he's brought you into the light of his presence? That he means to give you life like you've never had it before. And then even when you die, better life. Well, you're going to hear it in the word is where you're going to hear it. And unless, right, the same thing, unless you and I are actually experiencing the word of God, well, it's going to be hard. You're going to have weak consciences and guilty consciences. and And all of us struggle, but... God means us to know his heart. And so, um, you know, this week we head into Thanksgiving. Um, I wonder if you would make a commitment. I wonder if you would make a commitment to actually spend time in the word of God Every day until Thanksgiving. And then on Thanksgiving, catalog what you have to thank him for.
you know, before you, everybody, you know, if you go around the table and say, I'm thankful for that, I don't know if you do that or not. Some people do, some people don't. You know, we usually can say, well, I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for mom and dad. I'm thankful for my job. This year. Amen. Great, great stuff. But before you even get to that table, you get to God's table. And you say, I, I want to thank you for grace upon grace. Let's pray. You are the word made flesh, Jesus. You are the fulfillment of the whole story. You are light and darkness. You are truth. You are the tabernacle. You are the temple. You are the ultimate sacrifice. You are the praise of your Father. You are the, flood, you are the glory of the Holy Spirit. And you are ours. And we embrace you and long to know you more through the word you've given us. You are the living word. In Christ's name.